Welcome to the first podcast in this series titled In Conversation With. My name is James Watson and I'm the International Head of Decarbonisation at international law firm Osborne Clark. My history lies in the development of renewable energy projects and I've always had a passion in decarbonisation and helping businesses achieve their net zero goals. In my role, I feel incredibly fortunate to meet and have conversations with individuals who are truly at the vanguard in the energy transition and the decarbonisation space, and who are really pushing the boundaries across all sectors as we all move towards the goal of reaching net zero. This podcast series has been set up to try and capture some of those conversations. And for this first edition, we are releasing on Earth Day in the year of COP26. And I'm really pleased to introduce two fantastic speakers, Simon Whistler from UNPRI and Roberto Castiglioni, co-founder and CEO of Ikigai Capital. So now to the first conversation with Roberto. Welcome, Roberto, and thank you very much for joining me for our first edition of this podcast. Roberto, might you be able to begin by introducing yourself and the work of Ikigai Capital? Hi, James, and, and everyone listening. Thank you, uh, first of all, for inviting me to participate into this podcast. Really excited about this. Um, my name is Roberto Castiglioni, and I'm the CEO and founder, co-founder of Ikigai Capital. Ikigai Capital um, is a net zero bankability advisor. And uh, what do we mean by net zero bankability advisor? We um, bring in our expertise uh, about funding projects that are uh, necessary to get to net zero and part of the energy transition. In particular, we also look at um, reducing stranded asset risk, uh, which is something that I believe we'll be talking about in into this podcast, and also decarbonizing the operation of the large energy users and the large infrastructure, critical infrastructure projects like airports, ports, and um, other critical utilities like the water utilities. And also what we do is we um, make sure that we bridge the gap between the four main stakeholders to deliver the energy transition, which are government, technology, financial institutions, and the demand side. So we're very much focusing on, you know, decarbonizing the demand, the demand side. Great. Yeah, thank you, Roberto. And just, yeah, just picking up on that point there around sort of stranded assets. Um, how do you look to factor in the cost of carbon into the projects that you, you work on? So the stranded asset risk is something that it's kind of kind of, kind of new, um, uh, at least with regards to uh, the energy sector. And when, when we speak about stranded asset, we don't mean um, the asset like the upstream uh, oil and gas, which has its own issues about, you know, being stranded. What we talk about is, for example, infrastructure asset that may lose value or may change in its value because of either carbon regulation set by governments or just because of um, customer changing their their habits and their attitude towards their specific asset. One example above all is airports or ports. Um, I've just read a couple of um, couple of days ago in the FT that the uh, French government 
has, in order to help Air France to get through the COVID um, situation, has basically told Air France that in order to support them, they will have to get rid of all the local flights. That in order to reduce carbon emission. And of course, it's not that people are going to stop traveling, but people will be incentivized to use other means of transport, like hopefully train, which are electrified and high speed in France. But that's exactly where we come from. We don't want people to stop using infrastructure. We just want to make infrastructure greener. That's where we have to get to as, as, a, as, as governments. We need to support infrastructure development, but we need to do it in a green way and enabling them to uh, become greener. And the, the concept of stranded asset is starting to be quite a major issue for, especially for institutional investors that hold this kind of asset, but not just uh, infrastructure like, like a port or an airport could be, but also on the generation side. What's going to happen to your biomass plant, for example, in, in a few years, if you haven't taken the uh, right measures to decarbonize your, your asset? We know where we're going. We know that the UK had um, 20% or 40% of its energy generated by coal power in 2012. And after nine years, it's 0%. So that is the trend. That is where we're going. So it, it, it is going to be key for governments to support carbon in order to get energy transition. And just, yeah, absolutely. And just, just picking up on that sort of trend there of, of, of things starting to move and develop a pace and, and change being made. Do you, do you think investors understand that kind of sense of urgency? Are, th you know, are things moving at the right pace? Um, you know, are different strategies to achieve net zero needed to to keep that momentum and to maybe, you know, accelerate it? I want to be quite clear on this point. Investors understand it very well, but investors will move only if value is generated by these projects, by these solutions. We cannot expect shareholders, investors, our own pensions, not to generate any any return by supporting uh, the energy transition because it wouldn't work. Yeah. So it I, is understood, but it's also need to be um, a valuable proposition. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll come on to that really in this, in the, the next question. I mean, innovation is an important part of the focus of COP26. Um, we've seen the UK government uh, putting a lot of attention around its 10 point plan into new technologies. So CCUS and hydrogen, uh, some clean tech, green tech opportunities. But but the key point there is like, how are businesses and investors looking to invest in these new technologies to balance, as you were just saying there, that risk and reward, the risk and the opportunities to actually make this energy transition happen? Yeah, and we, we very much welcome new technologies because the decarbonization is complex. It's not just putting solar plants on the ground and, and wind farms offshore and magically everything happens. Even by doing that, we're creating problems on the grid that need to be addressed with the use of technology, with the use of digital digitalization, with the use of storage technology. And if you think about it, for the last 15 years, 
not a lot has been done in terms of advancement in technology because we were all quite happy of taking advantage of su subsidies on solar and wind. And we've all invested billions into this technology that they didn't need really to advance a lot because they were supported by subsidies. So government's role is, is extremely important because as we have seen that the um, government involvement with solar and wind really kick-started the whole um, industry and got to a point where now we pretty much have grid parity for solar, especially in, in you know, countries in, in um, Southern Europe. Um, with regards to CCUS and um, hydrogen, everyone, every investor we talk to is talking about this. Hydrogen is not going to be the secret sauce that makes everything taste better because hydrogen is, is a great um, element that has potentially a lot of application, but not everywhere. Also, hydrogen as an element not necessarily is the, the key to the solution, but is part of the solution. Um, whether we're looking at heating, whether we're looking at gas, whether we're looking at uh, transportation, hydrogen is going to be part of it. Still today, green hydrogen, difficult to make uh, financial sense. So how is the government supporting this? And, you know, I'm not a big, big fan of um, subsidies across the board, um, but I definitely believe that the government at the beginning of technologies, of use of technologies, has a role to play. So 10-point plant, great. Uh, we need to see how um, the government is really supporting this technology in terms of carbon capture, whether it's usage, whether it's storage, but also the way you support, it's not just by subsidizing the technology, it's also about regulating the technology and giving visibility for the investors. Investors love visibility. And the reason why uh, some technology don't kick off is because of there is a lack of visibility of the revenues. Yeah, and and just just picking up on that, it's a neat point. The that sort of carrot and stick. Some some of the new technologies need that subsidy to to get yeah. things going. As you rightly said, around renewables, uh, you know, a decade ago, we're going to need some level of support and intervention. But equally, you know, on the flip side, there's going to need to be some some sticks coming out. And, you know, it's understood that part of, um, you know, what the government's looking to achieve in um, in the autumn and in COP is going to be around taking Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, the, the carbon markets, the carbon pricing, and actually starting to look at carbon taxation and that downside, if you like, on a balance sheet. I just wondered whether you had any thoughts around sort of COP26 and in addition to those kind of issues, what what else would you be hoping uh, these big government uh, uh, um, groupings want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, first of all, as you just mentioned, uh, a consistent carbon policy across countries um, needs to be drafted. There needs to be an alignment um, not to create competitive disadvantages, because if it's only the UK implementing um, stringent carbon policies and, and, you know, penalties, there's no point continental Europe is not doing the same. 
because otherwise then we will have industries in the UK moving to Europe. And, you know, let's not forget that we also have to deal with Brexit these days. So there needs to be everyone on board and not just some on board. And also it needs to be um, setting some targets that are challenging but achievable and starting potentially with quick wins in order to create momentum, to generate momentum. Because if we see that things are happening, it's you know invigorating to everyone when we get to COP27 next year to show that actually something has been achieved in a year. And also one point that I really would like to see is accountability. And I don't think there is accountability. Loads of um, prime minister going out there promising everything and then nothing happens. Probably because you know the mandate is short. Potentially you have five years. You know, Biden, hopefully he will do well and we get eight years and there is continuity. But let's be honest, in 40 years, there's not a lot you can do unless you start with quick wins, as I was saying, and you just grab, you know, the low hang, the famous low hanging fruits. Yeah. You just grab them and you create momentum from them. And on the on that, you create the basis for the medium and long term delivery and accountability. You don't have to deliver a full deployment of hydrogen uh, fueling station in a year, but you can definitely deliver something. You can deliver a regulation. You can deliver carbon regulation across the countries in a year and start putting some milestones. Yeah, I detect a, a healthy level of skepticism of the politicians there, Roberto, which is always good. I mean, uh, the final sort of thing I wanted to cover was this, this podcast is being released on Earth Day. Um, which um, Joe Biden is is using as a means to show his kind of global leadership of of net zero. Um, you know, do you think this is authentic? What what what's your take on on Joe Biden and his administration and and net zero? Do you do you have any preliminary thoughts? He's he's only been in office for a, a short period. Yeah, well, let's say it'd be quite difficult for him to do worse than Trump. On, on green energy policy, because I don't think Trump has done a, a lot, uh, if, if I can be extremely PC. Um, the policy that he's setting out um, during his campaign, we, we need to see how well he's going to implement it. We can see the, the first signs now, but there's still a lot of greenwashing across countries. Um, Prime Minister don't want you to lose face or prime minister wanted to be reelected and using these kind of windows just to talk about it, but behind the scenes, there's not much happening. There needs to be, you know, an alignment in every country across the different um, growth areas of, of a country because the industry needs to be on board, transportation needs to be on board, even, you know, tourism needs to be on board and the food industry needs to be on board. The farming industry needs to be on board. So it's not just going out and saying, oh, we're reducing emission here and there. We need clear indication of how you're gonna reduce in the steel industry, in the uh, shipping industry, in the glass industry, whatever industry that you care about, what are the actions that you're planning to do to implement in the next year and then in the next four years to deliver 
uh, decarbonization of everything. We've done an extremely good job on decarbonizing the generation, at least in the Western countries. You know, generation is is truly decarbonized to large extent across Europe and across other countries. But then we still have mobility, transportation, we still have the industry, and they are very difficult to decarbonize. So what are we doing to decarbonize there? You know, COVID has given us an opportunity to do it, and I think COVID has accelerated the decarbonization, but there's still a lot to to be done on the government side, on the industry side, on technology, and on the financial investor side. Yeah, that's a really good point to to end with. And and just building on that, I think also just the cost of all this uh, with COVID, with Brexit, as, as you were saying earlier, um, you know, the cost of decarbonisation is, is significant and how that cost is borne, how it is allocated, how it is accepted by businesses, governments and private citizens as well is going to be a key part yeah. of the agenda. And that's something that we have strong views on. We don't believe that it needs to be a cost for anyone because we see that as opportunities for everyone to improve actually their the profitability of their businesses by acting on the energy levers. For example, um, not a lot is being done and should be done about reducing reducing consumption, you know, about digitizing consumption that we can see that not a lot has been done. But just by doing that and by reducing demand, you have a double effect that you improve your profitability as a business and also you reduce the usage of energy, which then in turn can be satisfied a lower demand can be satisfied by 100% renewable energy. Yeah. So we don't necessarily think that it needs to be done at a cost. And that's potentially, when it is, the role of government to step in yeah. and manage that. Fantastic. Well, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks, Roberto. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. Ikigai Capital really are doing some fantastic work. And it's great to hear from Roberto on his thoughts on the upcoming COP and some of the issues investors are particularly alive to. Next up, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Whistler, Senior Specialist at Principles for Responsible Investment. Simon, thank you for joining me today. Could you please uh, start off by introducing yourself and the work that you're doing at uh, the PRI? Yes, thank thank you. Good morning, James, and thank you very much for, for having me today. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Simon Whistler. I lead the PRI's work on real assets. Uh, and what that means is that I work with our community of infrastructure, real estate, forestry investors, and, and so on to, to really help them understand um, different ESG issues and how they can factor those into their investment processes. We do that through providing guidance, uh, education, and awareness raising through events, webinars, podcasts like this. Um, and building out networks of, of like-minded um, signatories to, to really support the overall growth of and, and uptake of, of ESG within the industry. Great, thank you, Simon. Um, we're now going to go through just a few questions. So um, what's your view on the sort of cons- consolidation, the codification process that's currently taking place across the ESG taxonomy at the moment? And um, 
Do you think we'll see greater regional global standards starting to emerge as a result of that? So I think taxonomies in themselves, or we consider them an essential part of the sustainable finance ecosystem. Um, the PRI or members of the PRI played a, a really important role in, in the development of what's probably the, considered the first major taxonomy, the, the EU taxonomy, which will which will soon come in, come into effect. Um, so so yeah, we I mean, we believe they're a fundamental part of the, uh, the sustainable finance eco ecosystem. And it's great to see that it's not just the EU now, but there are a number of other countries around the world, whether that's China, India, Canada, Singapore, New Zealand, developing their own taxonomies and working together with the EU and other countries uh, under different umbrellas to to try and bring some of those taxonomies to um, some some of those taxonomies together. There are inevitably going to be differences between. Um, some some countries and some some countries' view on what sustainable is and what it means within their own jurisdictions. But obviously, we encourage as many of these jurisdictions and countries to to work together so that you don't get that that huge inconsistency across across the world. Um, because ultimately, we do need to agree that there are certain standards on on sustainability, whether those are environmental issues, social issues, governance issues, and so on, that are all embracing um, and yeah, we can't we can't have one country or a set of countries effectively undermining under, undermining the others um, on what on, on on what those views of sustainability really are. Yeah, and just that's a really good point. And just picking up on that, and uh, kind of mindful that we want to avoid similar concepts to the kind of regulatory arbitrage that uh, occurred in financial services with sort of uh, jurisdiction hopping, so to speak. Um, do you think that this kind of consolidation will result in a regulatory regime that encourages more of a race to the top as opposed to a lowest common denominator approach? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I, in some ways, I think you have to have a bit of both. I think I think you have to. We we want to encourage a race to the top. We want, uh, and there are certain let's say global thresholds that we think are effectively. Un, untouchable. I mean, we, we know uh, in relation to climate, there are, there's only so much of a carbon budget that we have left. And so any taxonomy has to has to work within that, that carbon budget on a on a global level. Um, and so and we yeah, we want to push organizations, be that investors, be that corporates, be that governments, and so on, to, to work to work towards those. And we can't have the taxonomies undermining those. But we understand that some countries, some organizations, investors, businesses, and so on are in different positions and realities of those are are different and we also need to work with those at the bottom to help, help them get started as well I mean, if you look at it from a from a pri perspective we're um we're driving up let's say the minimum standards that we expect of our signatories over the next few years because we want to push that from we want to push those standards from the bottom but at the same time on our on our reporting we're also making it harder i think to, to achieve the highest scores we want to encourage people to do better at the top as well so and I, and I think that applies to the the taxonomies where we can work together to push people to the top and, and to meet those global thresholds then then we must do but we've also got to understand that different jurisdictions have very different socio-economic environmental realities and and there's got to be you, and you've got to be, work within those with the, within those boundaries what works in the eu isn't necessarily going to be the same for South Africa 
or Mexico or, or whatever other country that you want to want to think about. So I don't think it's completely black and white. Um, but but yeah, the big picture is we want to encourage people to, to do more at the top, but also how do we encourage those at the bottom or those who are still starting out start, starting out on their journey to do to do more and drive their own standards up. Yeah, it's a, it's a great answer. And I, I, I agree that sort of that balanced approach to encourage and cajole. Uh, as well as for the the leaders to be setting some kind of example is is really important and it it kind of builds on a conversation I was having just yesterday with our uh, uh, environment and climate change team in our Mumbai office um, you know really keen to learn from uh, sort of the European uh, countries in our network and the US around what we're seeing so that they can help guide and formulate some of those standards locally so I think there's a real appetite to that and it builds into the next question really which is um, kind of reflecting on the change of the US government and looking ahead in the in the short to medium term around certainly changes in government in France and Germany and and, and others. Um, so how do you see the, the global standards landscape changing um, on the approach to carbon and ESG in the in the sort of short to medium term? Well it's it's clearly gathering momentum and that's helped by the US but it is also happening before the change in government as, as well. I mean, in the last year, we, we maintained a database of, of regulatory developments around ESG and sustainability. And I think last year we had over 120 new or revised policy instruments around sustainability. And that's the most we've ever seen in a year. That was 30% more than, than 2019. So, so there's clearly a huge amount of, of global momentum around this. It's not just your your main jurisdictions, the EU, the UK, and, and, and others who've always been seen as, let's say, leaders from a policy and regulatory point of view around sustainability issues um, where, where these things are happening. But having the US on board does give extra weight. Um, and undoubtedly, it gives that, gives that extra weight. It was seen as one of the major laggards from a, from a global perspective when it comes to sustainability issues from a, from a national government point of view. Um, so it's great to have them on board. There was already a, a lot happening in the US in certain states anyway, but having that federal support, that clear direction from, from the newest administration can only help and hopefully will encourage other, other administrations where we perhaps so don't see enough around the world to, to change course as well. I would say one note of caution when it comes to the US though, is that a lot of this is still based on executive orders. It's, it's not set in stone from a, from a legislative if you don't still have that bipartisan consensus between Republicans and Democrats on, on climate change and what is good for the economy or having green the green transition being good for the economy there. So it, ideally, we would see what are currently executive orders in time being put in firmly into, in, into legislation to set those more in, in concrete because otherwise there is a, a risk of rollback in, in a few years' time. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Simon. Um, the the vulnerability of the U.S. regime when it's based on executive orders is 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 a is a concern. I, I like that point, you know, about that the building of consensus and perhaps some, um, you know, one of Biden's uh, approaches could be to focus on other less contentious parts of ESG to really galvanise that cross-party support and and that sort of leads to the final question, which is. Um, this podcast is all around uh, Biden's Earth Day summit. Um, and, and one of his key objectives, I think, is uh, around the creation of green jobs. Um, 
and maybe this is somewhere where he can build that consensus. So do you see a, a correlation here with the growing prominence of businesses factoring in the S of ESG and that role in jobs creation post COVID and the build back that we're going to see? Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about the idea of a, a just, just transition away from a fossil fuel fuel based economy or for those com communities that are affected from that transition from, from fossil fuels to, to a greener economy to ensure that they aren't left behind, that new jobs are created, that training is provided, skills provided and so on for, for workers in, in those types of, of industries to ensure that economic inequalities don't grow and, and those kind of social differences don't grow. So, so absolutely, it is really encouraging to see that emphasis in, in Biden's plan. And it's similar in many ways to what the EU's been talking about with its with its Green Deal. And we wait to see what, what that finally is going to, to come out with in, in due course. And, and also in, in the UK, you can talk about the, the levelling up agenda that this administration, uh, this government has as, as well um, by, by the same token, um, sort of bringing, bringing up those that are perceived to have been left behind previously. And I think it's particularly important in the in the concept of infrastructure investing as well. I mean, infrastructure is obviously a huge part of the the, the plan that, that Biden has has announced. And this idea around the, the social license that infrastructure projects need to have, get the buy-in from local communities, get the buy-in from their employees, get buy-in from, from governments, whether that's local or national governments as as well. And that that real emphasis on stakeholder engagement, understanding the key social issues around those projects and, and, and addressing them in, in a sustainable manner that's going to achieve long-term long outcomes beyond the, the basic service provision that the infrastructure provides. So I think actually when you look at infrastructure and, and how the role that it's going to play in decarbonizing the economy, then you can't dis disassociate the social element from that. And, and you see, I mean, certainly the investors that we, that we work with at the PRI, they're, they're understanding that more and more, they're doing more and more in that respect. Um, and you'll see that filtering down to other parts of the, the, the infrastructure community and, and sort of the business world in, in general um, as well. Yeah, th thanks, Simon. And absolutely, I mean, we're seeing it as well. Um, the infra, infra investors in this space are, are driven by um, you know the requirements of the the underlying investors, who are in turn, and this is I think a really important point, driven by society ultimately, the pension funds uh, who who take our pensions and invest them in infrastructure are are driven by de increasingly by demand from uh, people like you and I who are investing in their schemes. So I, I can see it as a a real step change going forward, and um, yeah, and, yeah I'm really seeing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you take a slightly different analogy to see everything that's happening at the moment in relation to the what's this European Super League in football and the whole yeah. reaction from fans and, and governments yeah. and, and, and everyone who's not part of those those 12 clubs involved. With it. I mean, you, you neglect public opinion at, at your peril, I think, and that, that applies as much to, to those football clubs as it does to infrastructure, as it, as it does to business in general. That's a great way to finish. Thank you, Simon. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks very much, James. My sincere thanks to both Simon and Roberto for joining me in this podcast. It has been great to hear about their work and contributions towards reaching net zero. Please join me next time for another episode of the In Conversation With series.